Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside ND Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideNDSports.com on the Rivals Network. The news cycle around Notre Dame football has slowed down finally with the coaching staff in place, and the recruiting dead period is not quite over yet. So we wanted to tackle some national topics with friend of the podcast, Dennis Dodd, a national college football writer for CBS. Dennis, thanks for joining us. Uh, great to be back. Thanks for having me, guys. Dennis, Al Golden has returned to college football as Notre Dame's defensive coordinator. How do you think he will do in that role? And did you think that he would be back in college football sooner than he has been? Yeah, I, I don't know if I expected him back as soon as this. I mean, I, I don't know how happy he was where he was before, but I, I think he, he's in a perfect place. Um, this is what he does best. Uh, you know, for whatever reason, you know, Miami didn't work out. I think he's been in the NFL. I think he does college better than, than, than the pros, frankly. Um, and I think that's where he wants to be. And look, at, at, at his age, if everything works out at Notre Dame, maybe he's still got enough gas left in the tank that he, he gets a head job down the line. But that's being very presumptuous right now. I, I thought it was a great hire. Dennis, you know, with so many hires in this this uh, cycle, there were seven here at Notre Dame, you get a lot of headlines with home run hire. And I'm wondering when you look at key assistant coaching hires, what are you really looking at to maybe gauge success down the road with these guys? Um, you know, a com it really sounds weird, a combination of youth and experience. Um guys that are experienced but aren't looking for you know a trap door at the end of their careers obviously that's probably not going to happen at Notre Dame um, energetic people who uh, understand in this day and age the portal and and uh, and NIL and everything else I thought the return of Harry Heastant was great I mean, he's obviously well respected there um, well respected in the game and you know, again, has experience there where you absolutely know he's going to be a, a great offensive line coach. That's been his whole career. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that was the case. And then the holdovers, you know, obviously Marcus knew some of them or uh, actually all of them. Um, I, I was looking at the roster. I, I think it's kind of interesting. Notre Dame has four analysts. Um, if you believe the tea leaves, you know, Alabama's got like 35 because they don't list them all in their, in their lineup. But <laughs> I think that's actually a good story for somebody. I think the analyst thing has kind of settled into a market where it's like four to six you can get by on. And, and frankly, that's what, you know, the average staff uh, pool will endure. Uh, obviously, Alabama, Georgia are different animals, but uh, it's kind of settled into that four to six range. De Dennis, with – with the head coaching hires across the country, I'm curious which which one really caught your attention that intrigued you the most this this uh, offseason cycle. Gosh, there were so many. I think there were 29. I mean, that was almost a high, a modern high. There were 31 uh, a few years ago. Obviously, the Lincoln Riley hire is huge. Uh, just for the way he left, why he left, what he went to. Uh, in many ways, he has the Pac-12 future on his back. If you think about it, maybe the top three 
schools uh, programs in terms of tradition have all changed coaches, Oregon, Washington, and USC, and what that means for the league going forward. But obviously USC is the flagship school in that conference and trying to bring his, his expertise, which is obviously well defined and well chronicled over the years. It, it's still a young age in his thirties is just fascinating to me in the, the bad feelings it caused at Oklahoma where they were made to feel like a stepping stone. I don't know if that's ever happened at a place like Oklahoma mm-hmm. uh, and they get bread and Venables. who's a great, great replacement almost right away was great, but lots of pressure on Lincoln Riley. And, and, and I think he's going to get it done. You know, what is, what does that mean at USC? Well, I think winning conference titles and, and contending for playoff bursts, which is something that, you know, the PAC 12 hasn't done. It's been, I think 17 years now, something like that since they won a national championship and they haven't been in the CFP in five or six. So there's a lot on Lincoln Riley. Um, that's going to be fascinating to watch. Before I ask my question, the one thing that surprised me about the coaching carousel was that somehow Lane Kiffin stayed put and yeah. all that. <laughs> his, his name is attached to every job, yeah. whether it's a, from, from car dealerships to, uh, to astronaut. I mean, forget coaching. He's, uh, he's attached to everything. But yeah, I, think he, he, I think he feels pretty good there for now. Yeah, he, it seems like he likes trolling Brian Kelly, too, in his dancing. But uh, <laughs> um, the thing that just is an enigma for me is, you know, just a year before it was all these head coaches taking a pay cut because of COVID and talk of cutting sports and that this was going to be a long-term dig out from this shortfall of revenue. And then one year later, it's like spending spree. um, And, and the, the salaries just went crazy. What happened? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, a 10-year contract became what, what used to be a two-year extension. Yeah. Um, and, and really, the Mel Tucker thing at Michigan State just reset the whole market because, you know, you've got uh, Mario Cristobal at Miami with a 10-year deal. Um, you know, and what, uh, Brian, Brian Kelly, Kelly got a 10-year deal. My question is, for a guy to reset the market like that, and we know – from reporting that there's two two boosters there that are paying for the whole thing. Would Mel Tucker have said yes for 85 million instead of 95? Would he have said yes for 75 million? Yeah, look, no one said any of this makes sense. I mean, schools have been known to overpay for coaches. I think we know that. Um, and that and that led to, you know, another guy, James Franklin, got 75 million for 10 years when there was absolutely no market for him. He he had he was a hot going into the Iowa game. His name was all over the place. Well, they lose, you know, they lose Sean Clifford. They lose one of their defenders and they slide off the face of the earth. And he's the, no, he's not going to USC. He's not going to Notre Dame. He's not going to these places. What leverage did he have to get 75 million? And I know, I just know from talking to people at Penn state, you know, there's a board of trustees and there's a trustees sort of subcommittee that decides compensation. And that's where that came from. It was basically three or four people who thought he was worth it. Um, You know, again, would he have taken a five-year extension? Of course he would have at that point. They They weren't very good at the end of the year and nobody was calling, but Penn State or those four people, let's put it that way, um, 
you know, felt compelled to give him a, a decade long deal uh, in some of these. I don't know if his is Eric or not, but I know uh, Mel, T- Mel Tucker's is guaranteed, um, you know, which, which is another step, another discussion point. Yeah. Uh, they owe him every penny, no matter what happens. Dennis, I want to double back on Lincoln Riley at USC. Uh, that's uh, an obvious uh, interest to, of Notre Dame fans. Um, I'm of the opinion that, USC being good is better for Notre Dame in the long run. Although I don't know that might not make a sense in in a season in 2020 when you also play Ohio state and Clemson. Uh, But how quickly do you think Lincoln Riley can get things turned around out there at USC? I think pretty quickly given the portal, obviously everybody knows now that uh, they got Caleb Williams, they got Mario Williams, one of the, uh, one of the receivers at Oklahoma to come. USC, no matter who got that job, USC was going to have to get tougher in both lines. They got pushed around. They had lost their identity. And I know they went to the air raid uh, with Clay Helton, um, you know, for better or worse. But we all know USC's tradition and history. They run the ball and play defense. And that was even during the best years of Pete Carroll. Uh, they had some outstanding Heisman candidates, but they, you know, it was, it was not student body left and right, but they were a tough, tough team. They've got to get their toughness back, I think, before anything. And, you know, does Lincoln Riley do that with his MO being the air raid? You know, um, his, uh, his defensive coordinator, and his name escapes me right now, I know him real well, um, is going to have to be a key part of that. He had he had at Oklahoma. His his defenses were better, but they never were great. Oh, was it Greenwich? Uh, yeah, Alex Grinch, who's uh, who's got a great history. Was at Missouri. Was at Washington State under Mike Leach, um, and went to Oklahoma and, and improved the defense, but never really got over the hump where it was kind of on an equal plane with the offense. And that's part of Oklahoma's tradition too, and USC. So I think he'll have. This is going to sound bad to Oklahoma people, maybe better access to players if they keep those West, that West coast talent on, you know, in the West coast defensively. Speaking of doubling back, Tyler and I are doing this a lot. I wanted to talk about one of the changes at Notre Dame that didn't happen in the coaching staff. And that's Tommy Reese. Yeah. I'm going to be fascinated to get your take on him because you've got the people in the Notre Dame fan base that feel like he needs training wheels and you have people that are worrying about the NFL or somebody else pulling him away from Notre Dame. So I'm kind of curious what your take on Tommy Reese is as a offensive play caller, offensive mind, and a guy that's suddenly got incredible amount of responsibility. Yeah. I, I think he's, I, I think Notre Dame's got a good one and I think they were very fortunate to keep him. We know uh, you know, there was a, you know, Brian Kelly made the bum rush for those two guys, Marcus Freeman and, and Tommy to go and was pretty perturbed reading uh, the stories that they, they didn't go. And I think it says a lot that Tommy stayed there um, at his alma mater and chose his path at, at Notre Dame. Uh, I think the, the results on the field speak for themselves. Jack Cohn had the best season of his career. Jack, Jack Cohn was you know, a quarterback manager at, at Wisconsin, pretty good one, played in the Rose Bowl. But I, I saw things out of him last year that I didn't see before. And we, I have to tell you about the, the running game. 
So I, I think he's he's beyond cutting his teeth. I think he's an established offensive coordinator at a very young age, and, and Notre Dame's glad to have him. We're fortunate to have him. As far as the NFL, look, the, the NFL's there for all these guys. If they're good enough, there's nothing you can do about it. And that's the decision you have to make for yourself and your family. So to worry about that, you know, I think it's kind of worthless right now. De- Dennis, the the plan for an expanded college football playoff sooner rather than later has fallen apart. Um, what is your perspective on that? Are these conferences just being stubborn um, to what what should happen, or do they have valid concerns about uh, the expanded playoff moving forward? Well, it fell apart when, if you guys remember, last June, uh, the 12-game the expansion was put out there uh, very, you know, well-received at the time. Uh, and at that time, uh, about a month later, exactly, almost, uh, Texas and Oklahoma, the, the story broke that they were talking to the SEC, and that just created all kinds of uh, concern and rancor within the power five, given that the SEC had just negotiated a new contract with ESPN, it's going to kick off in 24. You know, I, I've, I've said since then that the SEC probably has the greatest collection of brands under one tent this side of the NFL in sports, um, at least in America. Uh, if you think about all that they have and what that means. So the immediate knee-jerk reaction was this alliance between the Pac-12, Big Ten, and ACC which was not, not so much a voting block, although that's what it ended up being in, in stopping uh, expansion, but maybe putting the brakes on, on, on perceived, the SEC's perceived takeover of college football. We can debate that. We know how powerful they are. Mm-hmm. But that's when it really started grinding to a halt. You had those three new commissioners at those conferences who had never really even come close to doing something like this. Jim Phillips was AD at Northwestern, so he was familiar with the college arena. But Kevin Warren at the Big Tens from the NFL. George Klyavkov was running um, MGM, uh, big events for MGM in, in Vegas. Um, had, had no virtually no college experience. And so they were getting their feet wet. So I think the default setting for them when all this happened was, well, we're just going to stick our, draw a line in the sand. And here are the reasons for the big, for the Pac-12, it was, I guess, the Rose Bowl's placement for the ACC. And I did a big story on this. It was, it was health, safety, welfare, future of the game, whether you agree with it or not, a 365-day pause to reflect on these things. I, I, I truly believe that's what they believe in. And then I don't, I don't get the Big Ten. I don't. Apparently, Kevin Warren has been told, somebody's whispering in his ear, uh, a rights holder, that if he holds on to the AQ uh, status, which is in the 12-game expansion, five plus one, the, the five power five champions automatically get in, um, then a group of five. They're whispering to him that your championship game worth will go up incrementally. If, if we can advertise that as the Big Ten championship game winner on TV goes, well, that's just dumb to begin with because 99.9% of the time in that scenario, um, the Big Ten champion is going to go anyway. Mm-hmm. So I, don't, I don't know. Look, I, I would never disparage anyone, but I, I don't know if he knows what he doesn't know in that situation. But 
that being the case, it really doesn't matter. You've got those 40 schools or 41 schools now um, voting as a block against the playoff, and it ended up being 8-3, and they needed to be unanimous. I'll give you a chance to disparage some people. Um, <laughs> how do you fix NIL at this point? You don't. And who I, fixes I, it? No, I, I, you don't. I've told people that the very reason it's in place is the reason why you can't go backwards on it now. The reason NIL and the transfer portal are in place is because the, the, the NCAA's lack of foresight and allowing themselves to get backed into a corner legally where the only thing they could do July 1st was, you know, to put out this four page statement. Um, here, here are the, you know, the minimum guardrails on NIL because they didn't foresee, I think at that time, 32 states had passed state bills. And it would have been whack-a-mole for the NCA legally to try to, to go against all of them in court. And, and they couldn't. So here we are. And anything that even hints of uh, capping player compensation these days is going to be met with that, especially after the Austin decision again yeah. in June, which, which uh, you know, a backhanded slap at the NCAA, nine to nothing in the Kavanaugh. Obviously, we all know the Kavanaugh decision um, in his vote, in his decision he wrote about which is basically telling the NCAA, don't, don't do this again. Don't come before us again with this. You're going to meet the same fate. And that wasn't even NIL. That was, that was a different lawsuit. Mm -hmm. So it's not going backwards. Uh, the transfer portal is not going backwards. I think in the transfer portal, they may, they may establish uh, a date where you can't transfer after year to year. Yeah. They and actually, think, yeah. they actually have that for this year. Yeah, you can transfer, right. but you can't get immediate eligibility after right. May 1st. Yeah. Right. After May 1st. And it's always been in place that you can't be in football. You can't have eligibility at two schools in the same semester. So that protects them there. But I think the only way it, it's addressed is, you know, if, if someday the, you're going to have to collectively bargain with the players and that may be closer than people think. You, stand, mm -hmm. you sit across the table, and I, I've made up this scenario. You sit across the table, lawyers sit across the table, and, and they say, okay, we need, the coaches say, we need your first two years without transferring. Okay, what can you give us back in return for that? Um, just like a, a baseball negotiation. And maybe it's, an, again, I made this up, and maybe the players say, uh, you know what? No practice begins uh, no earlier than 8 a.m. or something like that. I'm just making it up. But yeah. it would have to be a negotiation uh, at this point because legally the NCA can't do a darn thing. They limit the use of four-letter words to 16 <laughs> per practice. That's right. That's right. <laughs> steak, steak at every team meal. How about that? <laughs> I like that. Yeah. It, it seems like – a lot of a lot of these changes that have happened were were held off for so long because people, or at least the people in power, the schools, yep. to convince people that if these changes were happening, college football would be ruined, um, and that we would lose our fans. The fans wouldn't care as much because they don't want players to make money and all those kinds of things. Do you think is there a reality where college football is harmed in the long term by all these changes, or? People, I mean, are people just angry because people don't like change in general and then they'll sort of get used to what the new reality becomes? Well, those who have ever said that, who've ever, you know, made that contention don't have much credibility left because the more I think about it, the more none of this has come true. Let's go back to the 50s 
when scholarships were first awarded. Before I think 1954, it was a it was a, a uh, it was a violation to accept a scholarship. Well, nothing happened there, and then they gave them fifteen dollars a month in laundry money. Where oh no, we can't oh we can't compensate the players. Well, that worked. Um, and then there was cost of attendance, where you had coaches in the SEC literally arguing over Auburn getting a hundred Auburn players getting a hundred dollars a month more than Alabama players. We don't even talk about that anymore. That's just accepted. That's not a recruiting inducement. And now NIL, the game, people won't watch. This is the NCAA's contention for years. People won't watch. The ratings will go down. Well, we know that's not true. In fact, the opposite is true. Um, so who are we to believe here when, you know, when they say, well, this is this will hurt the game? Exactly how? And I went to I went back to games this fall. I was involved in four field stormings, not of my own choosing. I just happened to be there when it happened. Um, and, and when I was at the game, that's the last thing I was thinking of, what the quarterback was making or what the defensive end was making in his NIL. It was ball. And that's all the fans care about. So even if they look, if they get compensated, if they end up being employees of the school, even if there's a way that football splits off and look, and then uh, the schools sell their licenses, their marks, so they can wear their uniforms. You're still going to fill Notre Dame Stadium. Ohio State and Michigan is still going to be sold out and people are going to watch it. The guy on the street doesn't care. I'm not saying it's not a factor. I'm just telling you that the, the average fan doesn't care. They just want their alma mater to win. Dennis, last one from me. I'm going to have you put on your Dion Warwick psychic friends hat <laughs> and – Tell me five years from now, which fan base is going to be happier with their head coach and their program, Notre Dame and Marcus Freeman or mm -hmm. LSU and Brian Kelly? Oh, that's a good one. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm going to say Marcus because you've got, okay, Marcus is inexperienced, obviously. Um, you know, it, it was his time at Notre Dame. But there's a bigger factor and both, look, both programs are, there's tremendous pressure to win at yeah. both. I don't have to tell you that. There's something different about LSU where you may think you have to win, but until you get there and, and drink it in, you don't even understand. It's a different culture. I think we've seen that. Brian was made fun of for the accent and everything else. And the dancing. And the dancing. Uh, but even within the SEC, they look at LSU and go, that's a different animal. And unless you've been in Baton Rouge or Louisiana, um, it's different. Now, I'm saying this about, you know, Brian Kelly, a guy who I think is originally from Massachusetts. Well, Les Miles is from Ohio. You know, if you can coach, you can coach. But, you know, the shelf life for any SEC coach uh, and any Notre Dame coach, for that matter, um, is, is a short one. So I guess right now I'm going to go – um, Notre Dame and Marcus, because at LSU, for fair or unfair, they're going to expect 12 victories every year. Again, as they do in some form at Notre Dame, but maybe that's the difference. Um, you know, LSU is going against Alabama, Auburn, Ole Miss, Texas A&M every year. Notre Dame has its own schedule, but maybe not as tough. I don't know. All right, Dennis, that's all we have for you. We really appreciate you taking time to join us. 
and hopefully uh, you get to enjoy some downtime here in the what seems to be an increasingly shorter offseason for college football. It is. It's been it's been that way since I'll tell you what it's been that way since December 26, 2009. And I remember it vividly. I was sitting on the couch the day after Christmas and Urban Meyer retired for the first time, the first time. <laughs> and I said to myself, this is ridiculous. And it just went from there. The next 12, 13 years been the same stuff in the offseason. <laughs> well, sounds um, good. Well, thanks again for joining us. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Let's make some prop bets for the first time on the Inside ND Sports Podcast. First one I have for us, Eric, is which new assistant coach will be at Notre Dame the longest? I will say of the new ones, the one that will be at Notre Dame the longest will be... Harry Haystamp. All right. That would, uh, I think, make people pretty excited. Um, I, I went with Brent, Brian Mason. Um, not a lot of special teams coaches get promoted to head coach. Um, right. So I, I don't know that there's a lot of places that he'd end up going unless he were, were fired. Um, so, I mean, there's a, certainly a potential that he could become a head coach. I don't want to say that's not possible, but I think that that would potentially allow him um, – he has that air about him. I mean, in terms of his organization and stuff, he, I, I almost think he has to jump over to defense and coach some defense for a while, which is what he does along with special teams. So it'll be interesting. But yeah, he's, he's got that head coach future feel about him if he had the right career path. I really enjoyed at, at his press conference. He's like, Hi, I'm Brian Mason. You can call me Mace. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually have that in my lead. Um, but he won't let you call punt return, punt return. It's punt block. Oh, okay. I, I, I didn't. I wasn't around him for that conversation. That's funny. Yes. All right. Next one we have is over under one and a half new assistant coaches next offseason. I'm going to say under. Uh, I think there will be one, and I think it'll be Tommy Reese that gets an offer to be a head coach. All right. Yeah, that would be uh, certainly a possibility. I'm going under as well. And maybe it's just me with wishful thinking since I don't want to cover a bunch of coaching searches again. Uh, but but I, I do think folks may want to stick around with what Marcus Freeman is building at Notre Dame because I think something special is happening here. Um, so I, I don't know. I think that there are certainly people that could be promoted um, elsewhere. I, I'm not sure that that a lot of that will happen after one year, unless like maybe, I mean, if Notre Dame goes undefeated and it makes the playoff, then maybe there's a bunch of guys that everyone wants to, to raid Notre Dame's coaching staff again. Next uh, prop bet over under 4.52 seconds in the 40 yard dash for Kevin Austin Jr. at the NFL combine. I'm going to go slightly under with Kevin. I think he'll get into the high four fours. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm going under as well. It, it, he will sort of continue the tradition of Notre Dame's receivers performing well at the combine. Um, Chase Claypool and Miles Boykin both ran a 4-4-2. Um, I don't think Austin will be that fast, but I do think he has a chance to hit the under. I said there at 4.52. 4 
Next one, over under 4.21 seconds in the 20-yard shuttle for Kyron Williams at the NFL Combine. Well, I think Kyron's – what Kyron does well is, you know, cut and move laterally well. So, I think he'll do really well. So, I'll go under. Uh, we are in agreement again. Uh, I, I went under as well. The number I chose there for 4.21 seconds is actually what Tony Jones Jr. did at the 2019 Combine, which – I think if you if I just presented it to you as that, you'd be like, oh, well, of course, Kyron Williams would be better, better at that than Tony Jones Jr. But Tony Jones Jr. did fairly well um, at that. I think he was like the fourth or fifth best running back that year at the combine. So he, he uh, um, did did put up a four two one time is, is a pretty good time in the, in the show. And that he had any kind of NFL career is an accomplishment to his hard work because I did not see that coming. And our last prop bet, will Notre Dame's 2023 class still be ranked number one on June 1st? I think so, because Notre Dame, I think, will do really well uh, with its March unofficial visits, with its April official visits. Um, and I think they'll get some commitments out of it. And there will be a lot of momentum. There's really nothing to break their momentum right now, you know, uh, like a big loss or you know, something goofy and, and they're not a team that gets a lot of commitments right at the end of the cycle. So I, I think they will be number one in June. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. And, and I think when you said loss, you mean like a loss on the field, not like a loss, yeah, loss. Yeah, loss on the field. Because, because I mean, there certainly could be a chance that Notre Dame does lose one of its commitments. There are lots of schools coming after a number, coming after a number of different players in Notre Dame's class. Absolutely. But I, but I do think that Notre Dame's class size and with the number, I mean, all of those players are in the in the rivals 250. Notre Dame is going to be hard to knock off unless some of the classes um, at the top get a lot of good players. Because I think number two, last I checked, Texas Tech was there, and they have 13 commitments already, but their commitments aren't ranked as high. So early on, you are rewarded more for your quantity um, then at the end, because at the end, they only take your best 20 guys. Um, and uh, so I, I think that there's a possibility that Notre Dame could get passed, but I think I'm in agreement that Notre Dame will probably have a, a few more commitments by then. And I don't think they're going to be taking a lot of uh, three-star commitments at that point either. So um, I think Notre Dame's uh, spot in the class will, will be still at the top come June 1st, which happens to be my birthday. Now we'll start shopping now. (laughs) All right. Now it's time for questions. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or on the insider lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at T James ND and Eric's at E Hanson ND. First question is from the insider lounge. ND Bay asked, is the transfer window basically closed at this point or will more hit after spring football? And I, I assume that he means um, is Notre Dame's transfer window open or I mean, everybody's tra- the transfer portal is open for business until May 1st. At, if you are not in the portal on May 1st, you cannot have immediate eligibility in 2023 or 2022 rather in the fall. Um, so, um, but yeah, Notre Dame is going to be looking at people that are going to jump into the portal after spring football. And that's going to be 
uh, I, they're looking at those people now because, again, that uh, that that they just have to be in the portal. They don't have to be at Notre Dame by May 1st to play next year. But yeah, that next wave of talent is coming. And, and based on Notre Dame scholarship numbers, I think there will be more additions. Yeah. And there's definitely could be more subtractions as well. Um, after spring football for Notre Dame, Notre Dame spring football will be getting done pr pretty late in that, in that window it would, with regards to May 1st with the, with the, Blue Gold game being April 23rd. Um, but I do think there's a chance that there will be some turnover, both in additions and subtractions. We might not necessarily learn, or a kid might not necessarily commit. Like you mentioned, he has to be in the portal. He doesn't have to be committed to Notre Dame or, or at Notre Dame by May 1st. Um, so it, it's definitely still open. There could be, maybe there's some guys um, that are in the portal that Notre Dame has, has gained more interest in that maybe makes a visit for spring practice that, I haven't heard of any rumblings of that yet, um, but the, there's always that possibility. So I think Notre Dame's always going to be looking. So the, the window's never necessarily going to be closed. But yeah, in terms of practicality, there aren't going to be guys um, in the next few weeks um, or even the next month or so uh, transferring to Notre Dame because of it. You can't, I mean, you, you can't transfer until the June semester, anyways, at this point. So um, there's no, there's no rush for, for those players to get here. Next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie with spring practice right around the corner. What do you think are the most open slash intriguing position battles? Well, I'm not sure all, all of them are open. Um, and you would think with a lot of players returning, so many players returning as starters and regulars, there wouldn't be many. But you have seven new assistant coaches and a new head coach. So I think there's going to be a little bit more open-mindedness when it comes to right. players that are returning starters. I, I started with, and this is not in a particular order, obviously the quarterbacks, you know, you're going to be interested. But I think if, if there is a real competition between Pine and, and Buckner and Pine isn't vastly improved, that's not good news for Notre Dame. They need Tyler Buckner to really look like the Tyler Buckner that they thought they were recruiting. I, I put in here Riley Mills, if he's on the edge, if they decide to move him outside to that big end spot, I think that's a really interesting competition out there. Um, I think the safety pecking order um, will be interesting whether – you know, kind of where Ramon Henderson lands in that. He may be the second best safety on the team right now. Uh, cornerback depth, you know, which of those young corners is Jaden Mickey that kind of forms a group that you can feel good about putting on the field if you need to rotate. I mean, Notre Dame beyond their two starters and Tariq Bracey had three reps from anybody else but those three at cornerback. Uh, I really am intrigued by Collie and the four freshman linebackers. I don't expect any of them to start, and yet I think they can make those races really interesting. And then on the wide receivers, again, it's not so much of a position battle as how much progress, how much playing time can Deion Colsey earn in the spring, and and. 
And I would throw in there Tobias Merriweather in, in August, even though that's not a spring question. Uh, I think he's, he's going to be in the mix to um, get on the field. So those would be mine. I probably took all Tyler's up. Uh, no, I still have a couple more. Um, specifically a linebacker, how does the Mike linebacker starting role shape up? Is, is it yeah. J.D. Bertrand or is it Bo Bauer? Um, it's probably a mix of both. Um, I think we're assuming J.D. Bertrand moves over. Um, it's hard to have a concrete answer considering Al Golden just got here. Uh, so he's got some catching up to do. Uh, but I, I think that makes a lot of sense for Notre, Notre Dame to do that with those two guys at the Mike linebacker position. So how that plays out and maybe maybe we don't get a, that concrete of an answer in the spring with all uh, everything being so new there with um the defense being put together uh right guard um is a spot that oh yeah that's a that's a Guards. Guard starting spot that's up for grabs josh lug will be limited in the spring um so rocco spindler um will be able to make his case um to to get some playing time this season uh, i'd be interested to see if michael carmody gets a shot there um, I think he's someone who could play guard. Um, so, I'm, and I'm not sure if Josh will get any reps in or not. I'm not I, don't, I don't know exactly what his timetable is um, for the spring. I imagine he'd like to get in there uh, to prove himself to Harry Heastan, but I don't know that they're going to rush him back either. They want to be, they want to be careful with him. So um, that will be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, and then I'm also interested in seeing what happens with the number two tight end. Uh, there's not a lot of healthy tight ends in, in, in spring practice this year, but, um, Kevin Bauman and Mitchell Evans should be healthy um, and seeing which one of them can maybe put themselves in position to aid Michael Mayer um, throughout the season. I, I think I'm, 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 I'm fascinated by how that's going to play out. Next question we have from the insider lounge is from Irish sports fan. In your guys' opinion, what would define a good season for Tyler Buckner? And also what, what would define a bad season? What would make you go, holy crap, this guy is the real deal. Well, he gave some examples of like stats and I'm not so dialed into the totals as much as I am what the efficiency looks like, what he looks like in big games and so forth. So I would say for a successful season, and this is aiming pretty high since it hasn't, it didn't happen very often in the Brian Kelly era, but a top 25 pass efficiency rating, I think he we all see how well Tyler Buckner can run but his passing is what got Notre Dame interested in recruiting him and the run running was a bonus uh, so a top 25 pass efficiency rating as a sophomore that's that's going to be a successful season the uh-oh scenario is if people are carping for Drew Pine in October um, you know, there needs to be, and I, again, I'm not, this isn't anything against Drew Pine. He needs to be a really good number two, because there's going to be a series or a half, or maybe even a game where Buckner might be injured because he exposes himself in the running game and Pine's going to have to play well, but Buckner has to be far and away the better quarterback there. And then the, oh my gosh, he's great. And uh, let's buy cryptocurrency or whatever. Uh, can you buy cryptocurrency? <laughs> yeah, you can buy cryptocurrency. Okay, so you, let's go buy cryptocurrency with his picture on it. Um, 
he 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 is the difference maker in the big games. He's the difference maker against Ohio State and a Clemson defense. You can you can discount Clemson all you want on offense, but their defense is going to be top five. If he can make big plays in games like that, that's the oh mama, let's get cryptocurrency with Tyler's picture on it. Yeah, yeah, I think you're conflating cryptocurrency and NFTs at the same time, or unless you're like, unless you think they're going to create something called Buckner coin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but anyways, beyond that, uh, you mentioned the top 25 passing efficiency. Do you know what Jack Cohn finished that last year? I think he was 30th. I'm going to look it up while you're it's, it's um, you're, you're close. It's 32. I, I know what it is. Um, I, oh, okay. It was one of those smart Alec questions. Okay. No, 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 no. I, I, and I, I wanted to mention it because I'm not sure that the listeners would have would have necessarily known that. I, 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 if I thought you wouldn't have known at all, I probably wouldn't have asked. I wasn't trying to embarrass you. Um, I, I, I figured you had a good sense for that. So I, I think um, I did go into sort of the numbers um, based off of the example. Um, and so uh, for a good season, I sort of went with basically similar – to what I think uh, what uh, Jack Cohn did this past season with 3,100 passing yards, 25 touchdowns, seven interceptions. But in addition to that, 800 rushing yards and eight touchdowns. So I think if he can be sort of the same kind of passer that Jack Cohn was, in addition to his rushing ability, I think that's a good season for Notre, for Tyler Buckner and Notre Dame. A bad season, I, I, I just – and I, I, I mean, I put some numbers here, but sort of the concept is – uh, not a great passer, so 2,000 yards, 15 touchdowns, 15 interceptions, um, but still rushes really well, 100 or 1,000 rushing yards with 10 touchdowns. And then a holy crap season would be something like 3,500 passing yards, 30 touchdowns, five interceptions, 1,000 rushing yards, and 10 touchdowns. So um, really top-level passing and incredible rushing. Um, that would be the, the holy crap, holy crap moment. So I think that good season, those numbers I put out there are attainable. I think it will be tough to be maybe as uh, efficient as a thrower as Jack Cohn was. I mean, Jack Cohn came into Notre Dame with a lot of experience and that enabled him to, to be as efficient as a, of a passer as he was. But I think um, Tyler Buckner's running ability should open up maybe some easier throwing opportunities for him. So um, I, I think, I mean, a, a lot of the ceiling and floor of this season, it, it comes back to what Tyler Buckner can do, or if it's not him, then what Drew Pine can do. Okay, here's here are the pass efficiency, team pass efficiency ratings. So it, it alters it maybe a spot or two during the Brian Kelly era. So last year was 33 when you combine everybody, mm-hmm. 43 in 2020, 20 in 2019, then 43, 101, 36, 23, 30, 56, 74, 59, and 59. So Notre Dame has never been higher than 20, and, it, and it's rare that they've been in the top 25. And in their two playoff years, they were 43, and that was a big problem in those games. If you look at college football's national champions going backwards from this year back to 2012, when Notre Dame came in there at 74th and Alabama was one, the ratings for the court or Pass efficiency, team pass efficiency are 4, 1, 2, 13, 10, 18. Here's the outlier, 34, then 2, 1, and 1. So that's what you're looking at from a national championship quarterback. 
Yeah, so uh, no pressure, Tyler. That's what you need to be in, t- in order for Notre Dame to win. Well, I said 25. I didn't make him two. <laughs> no, no, no. But, no, I'm just saying, you know, if Notre Dame wants to win a national championship, that, that's that's how good he has to be. Right. So, I, no, it's good context. Uh, next question from the Insider Lounge. Rhino1134 asks, if Chris Vizina wants to commit after his Notre Dame visit, should Notre Dame take it knowing that it probably closes the door on Dante Moore? You know, I got asked this question in the live chat on Wednesday, and I'm changing my answer to that. <laughs> and, what, well, one of the reasons is I talked to Tom Lemming about it. I said, I asked him what he would do. Now, here's here's the thing. I think, I think Notre Dame leads for Dante Moore right now, and I think he's going to – if he's willing to make a decision in March or April – then I think Notre Dame can wait on him. You know, what What Tom Lemming told me was he loves Christopher Vizina and Dante Moore, but he thinks Dante Moore is that elusive guy that Notre Dame has not been able to pull in, um, and he thinks he's that special. I mean, it's the difference between a five-star and a high four-star player. And he would he would say if Vizina was ready to commit, they could go to Dante Moore and say, "Look, you're our number one guy. Um, are you close? Are you leaning toward it? You know, really get the feel for it and maybe slow play Vizina for a week or two. If if Dante's not willing to do that, then I think you take Christopher Vizina because I think he can play winning football. But I I really like Dante Moore. That's the guy that I've liked from the beginning. The the only thing that, you know, the only guy that really kind of intrigues me in the same sentence, I, I mean, I'm I, I'm sure Arch Manning is great and he's going to be great in college. I haven't been as infatuated with him and maybe because I didn't think he was gettable. But I like um, Nico out on the West Coast. Just the way the ball comes out of his hand I mean, it seems like if he were a right fielder, he could throw out <laughs> anybody at home plate from the wall, just the way the ball comes out of his hand in the deep passing game. So and I like his hair too. So I like Dante Moore's hair. So. And I believe it's, I am Alieva. I'm not sure if that's it. Yeah. So I am Alieva. You have to pronounce every one of the vowels. They don't, <laughs> there's nothing silent. I wanted to uh, to mention that just in case people didn't know who you were, were referring to. Um, yeah, I, w- I would rather you butcher his name than me. That's why <laughs> I did that. Um, my, my take on this uh, is that unless Notre Dame is supremely confident that Moore is coming to Notre Dame, then you have to take Vizina. I, because I think Christopher Vizina is too good to risk losing because you think there's a chance you could get Dante Moore somewhere That's up. what I said Wednesday, and then I changed my mind. So, But, but my, my caveat is this. I think you have to, if, if you're taking a commitment from Christopher Vizina, you have to ask him and be straightforward. Hey, if Alabama comes calling, are you going to change your mind? Because you're going to put us in a really tough spot if, if we're taking a commitment from you when we're still in the running for someone like Dante Moore. Um, but you're, you're going to, you're going to end up leaving us, leaving us hanging if, if, if Alabama comes calling for you, uh, because that would be a disaster to take Vizina, miss out on more because of that and then lose Vizina. So I think you have to be a bit more careful um, in this class, partially because of I, I'm not sure what Steve Angeli's 
ceiling is um, in terms of his future. Um, and if he, if he's the kind of quarterback that can get Notre Dame to a national championship level. Um, so I think, so you see, so you can't, so you can't strike out this class. That's what I'm trying to get at by mentioning that. Um, so that, that makes this a little bit more difficult. I think like if Notre Dame is in a good spot where they're consistently recruiting quarterbacks at the level of more Vizina, then you just say, screw it. We're going to go all in on Dante Moore. This is the guy we want. Um, and if you don't get it, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll redirect somewhere. We could probably maybe poach someone else. That could end up being what, it, what happens for Notre Dame if, if they, things fall through with Moore and Vizina. But um, I just think that uh, I, my preference too is, is more, but I don't think you can put yourself in a, in a position to not get either of them by, by, by whatever decision you make in terms of taking one of, or taking one of them. So I, I think that, um, or, or prioritizing one of them. So I, I think that's what I, that's sort of how I see it. I mean, it's, it's not easy. It's, uh, it's, it's a bit complicated, but uh, this is, this, I think this is going to be a huge measurement of Marcus Freeman's ability to recruit non-defensive players and Tommy Reese's ability to recruit that the difference maker at quarterback, um, which I think he believes Tyler Buckner can be as well. Uh, I think the whole interesting wild card in this, if I'm Dante Moore, you know, I think um, he was pretty close with Josh Gaddis, who left Michigan and went down to Miami. Uh, is how important is it that Tommy Reese is there more than a year or two of his college career? Uh, I think that's if I'm Dante Moore, and maybe maybe the lesson of Gaddis leaving got him thinking. Well, maybe the head coach is more important. I don't know. I, I think it's an interesting thing for for Dante to be considering. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, Gaddis I think left Michigan in part because they didn't want him to be the head coach if Jim Harbaugh left. At least that's what it seems like from the outside. Yeah. Um. So. What's, who's to say that Josh Gaddis isn't going to leave? Like, I don't know that, that Josh Gaddis is the pull to Miami, that that's going to be the difference because who, who's to say he's going to be there any longer than Tommy Reese will be at Notre Dame. So um, I think uh, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the coaching thing is tough because people, the kids definitely make their decisions based heavily on the coaches. They play a major role in that. Um, but it, it's just, it's just, you, you have to sort of separate that because the reality is that you're probably not going to finish your career playing for the same guy that recruited you. Right. And if you don't like it, you can jump in the portal like uh, Caleb Williams did. Yeah, exactly. All right. Next question is from Christopher Cruz at Chris ND 92. Is there any indication that Notre Dame's pecking? Is there any indication what Notre Dame's pecking order is for the 2023 offensive lineman? What is your pecking order for the 23 offensive lineman? I'm not sure that Harry's going to see things the same way Jeff Quinn did. Uh, completely, especially when it comes to the guards. You know, Harry has an uncanny ability to take somebody like Nick Martin, who had no business being as good of a center as he is and making him in as good a center as he is. Um, and so I think Harry's going to leave Jarrett Patterson alone and leave the two tackles alone, uh, the two sophomore to be tackles and Joe Alt and Blake Fisher. And then what he does with the guards and everybody else is really going to be fascinating. Um, like I could see him grooming Shrouth maybe to be a cent, a backup center for when Patterson leaves and have a different 
different uh, heir apparent there. But you've got Zeke Carell, Andrew Kristoffic, Josh Lug. You got Shrouth. You got Rocco. It's hard for me not to see Rocco and Harry hitting it off, um, even though there's not an obvious place for him. So my prediction with Harry would probably be Lug. And I'm going to go with a surprise and say Rocco. Um, but man, Andrew Kristoffic, you know, earned that last year, but we'll, we'll see. There's going to be competition as far as mine. I, I think what, what it looked like before Harry came in, I mean, Lug and, um, Lug and Kristoffic, I liked Andrew Kristoffic, um, at left guard and what he did last year, but I would like to see what Spindler and uh, and Shrouth can do, especially when Shrouth's foot gets healthy. And, and you were right about Carmody. I mean, Carmody would be a great insurance for your tackle, and he could probably kick inside. I'm not sure if Baker can, but I, I would imagine they'd look at him there. But, again, a, a, a really good option as a backup. Uh, suddenly you've got this – glut of talent and a guy that knows what to how to get the best out of it it's for me it's fascinating which is why I have spent so much time with Harry he stand at the uh, coaches introduction press conferences um I, I think Christopher was asking about recruiting um so I oh okay I thought I thought we were talking about the team. Okay, no, I'm, no, I'm, it's it's okay, and your analysis was good, so I didn't want to interrupt it because it's still valuable uh, information. But I, I, I'll I, let you answer the recruiting. Yeah, side. I'll answer the recruiting side of it. I, personally, I don't have a personal pecking order. Um, I haven't spent enough evaluating all the film of of the 2023 offensive line targets um, to feel comfortable with what I think Notre Dame should do. Um, as far as Notre Dame's preference, I think there's a handful of guys who are a priority. Among them, Charles uh, Jagusa, Samson Okunlola, Monroe Fling, Chase Basantis, Austin Sierveld, and Sullivan Absher. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily in that order. I haven't been able to um, sort of drill down, and I don't know that I don't know that there it's as necessary to have a pecking order like one through seven for offensive linemen when you're going to take multiple the, multiple of them anyways. Um, so, I mean, there, there's, there's going to be places, there's going to be times where it's like, okay, do we want to take, uh, Sullivan Absher or do we want to take, uh, Austin Sierville? Like maybe there's a, a time in, in the recruiting process where you have to sort of draw those lines, but I don't think those lines are necessarily like, um, as clear cut right now, um, for Notre Dame with the offensive lineman. And, and here he stands sort of getting back into, uh, evaluating these guys and getting to know these guys. Um, so I think that that will play a role. So I think it's still probably evolving. Um, but those are the guys I think are, are the ones that, that Notre Dame is both highest on and has, has a chance with. Next question from the Insider Lounge. Army 1972 asks, over under big 2023 class, 28 scholarships. I'm going to go under um... – I'm not sure how the portal numbers will affect because again, sometimes you get multiple year portal guys and certainly Brandon Joseph could be one of those. I think his, uh, 
aspiration is that he's one and done, that he plays well enough this year that he can be in the draft. Mm-hmm. And, and again, we're looking at probably some portal additions in the spring slash summer. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to go under, even though I think Notre Dame will have a lot of recruiting momentum to get big numbers. I think it'll be under 28. Yeah, I'm going under as well. Notre Dame doesn't go over 25 that often. Um, I'm curious to see how Marcus Freeman's roster management philosophy differs from Brian Kelly. And if he's more aggressive with signing more than you'd think that they'd have room for and maybe ushering out um, or encouraging guys to, to transfer that are buried on the depth chart. Um, so our current scholarship chart has 16 players with senior eligibility. Um, and some of those can still return due to COVID exemption. So uh, there's not a ton of room um, to, 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 to hit 28 seems unrealistic. I think probably in the 23 range is probably somewhere that I think this class will end up in terms of scholarship numbers. But um, obviously that, could be evolving as they get a sense for how the players are responding to the new coaches. Um, because a, a lot of the uncertainty there is like what sort of transfer attrition you're going to have on your team. Um, whereas you probably have a better sense of, okay, these are guys that we'd be interested in asking for it to come back for another year or guys that are juniors and they're going to be headed off to the NFL draft because they're going to have a really good season. So I think Notre Dame can anticipate some of that. And then some of it's sort of a, a baked in attrition that they have to forecast. And lastly, SJB75 on the Insider Lounge asked, the 2023 recruiting class is currently doing really well. Do you see this continuing through the National Signing Day in December? Yeah. I, I, you know, I, again, if Notre Dame had a disastrous season on the field, then I think that could derail it. And even then, there could be some of that. That's why we need you. That, that's going to put us over the top. But I, I, I just don't see that scenario happening. Marcus has, Marcus Freeman has a great plan to recruit with him being the lead recruiter. I think he hired guys that are really good and ambitious at recruiting. And I think they'll do really well. Will they be the number one class? I don't think that'll happen, but I, I think they have a pretty good chance of finishing in the top five. Yeah. Part of what will aid that is, Notre Dame doesn't have any offensive line commits yet. Um, That's typically a position that will boost the ranking because they're not taking a lot of three-star offensive linemen. Um, So that, that will certainly be uh, allow the class to stay highly ranked. Um, It's going to come down to the the quarterback and receivers, probably what they can do at those positions. Um, And I think the quarterback is sort of a, will probably be a direct correlation to getting, some really good receivers in this class. So I'm not ready to to predict that they're going to finish the class number one. Um, But I think top four, top five is probably more realistic than it's been since the last time Notre Dame was in the top five with the 2013 class. Um, So I I think uh, everything is looking good for Notre Dame in the long run, but there's still plenty of work to do. You got to keep the guys that are in the class committed. Yeah. That's the thing. This is that's the new storyline. Is there's going to be drama? That's just how (laughs) it is when you're going after guys that are that high caliber. They're 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 going to want their ego stroked. They're going to need to be babysat, and uh, they're going to be people that try to pull your recruits away. 
Yeah, and I don't think the Notre Dame fan base is quite ready for that. <laughs> yeah. Especially, especially after how things went with CJ Williams and Amari and Walker at the end of the cycle. I think they're 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 they just they want Notre Dame to like put its foot down and say, hey, you're not allowed to visit anywhere. It's like, well, do you want Keon Keeley in your class or do you not? Because if Keon Keeley wants to visit somewhere else, you say, All right, whatever, we're gonna have to keep fighting for him, but we want him in the long run because our class is better if we sign him than if we just tell him to go somewhere else because he wants to visit somewhere else. So um, it's, uh, it's going to be, uh, it's going to make for, uh, an entertaining, um, if not, if not annoying at some times, uh, a recruiting cycle, um, because I, I think, uh, Notre Dame's going to have, have its hands full and, and, and get itself into plenty of those recruiting battles. All right. That's it for today's episode of the inside ND sports podcast. If you don't already you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, share our podcast feed with a friend. Um, we'll probably be back next week with another podcast. We're um, not beholden to sticking with the weekly podcast, but we're trying to do it as frequently as we can. Um, until then, stick with InsideIndieSports.com for all your Notre Dame football offseason coverage needs. Mm-hmm.